This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw, he's Eric Flickinger, and this is an opportunity we have to answer your Bible questions. Remember, you can get them to us at Line Upon Line anytime. Simply email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. Eric, thanks for joining me today. Good to be here, John. Our first question is, would you please? First question is, what color is Jesus? There's a good question. We don't have a whole lot of pictures of Jesus floating around, at least not from a camera of any sort. What color was he? Well, I have a really good uh, answer for your question. The question came to us from Patricia. Patricia, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. He wasn't white like me. He wasn't black like a black person. Jesus was Jewish. He was a Middle Easterner. So he's somewhere in the middle. Now, the reason I say it doesn't matter, and, and I don't want to rain on anybody's parade or come off as the least bit offensive, but uh, there are enough questions of less than stellar importance floating around in Christian terms already. If Jesus was black, he is my savior. If he was lily white, he is my savior. If he was Asian, he is my savior. Hispanic, he is still my savior, but you know, he was Jewish. So if you'd really like to know, travel to Israel, take a look around, and Jesus looked a whole lot like what you see today. He's a Middle Easterner, somewhere mid-range. The most important thing is not that we know what Jesus looked like then, it's that we know what he looks like when he comes back. The second coming of Jesus is soon, thank God, through this Jesus, whatever color he was or is, we can have the gift of salvation now, and I'm glad about that. Thanks, Patricia. Here's a second question. It's from Rocky. Rocky's question is, I just had a query about life after death on earth and whether or not there is a hell that burns for eternity for those that are not in Christ. There you go, Eric. Is there an eternally burning hell? I think uh, good news for everybody is that no, there is not an eternally burning hell. Is there a hell? There certainly will be. In the book of Matthew, chapter 13, Jesus goes into some detail in giving a story, a parable, about this exactly. He says there's a farmer who goes and sows seeds in his field. Then an enemy comes in and sows seeds afterwards, mm -hmm. and the two begin to grow up. Right. The question is asked, should he go in and pull up the weeds? Here's Jesus' answer, verse number 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are are the angels. So there Jesus tells us what everything represents. Right there in verse 39, there's something really important speaking about the timing of all of this. Jesus said the harvest is the end of the world. Okay, let's keep that in mind. All right. So in verse number 40, Jesus continues. He says, as therefore the tares, that would be the wicked, he just explained that, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be when? 
in the end of this world. And if that weren't clear enough, drop down just a few more verses to verse number 49. In verse 49, he says, So shall it be at the end of the world once again. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I would imagine so. So, Rocky, is there an eternally burning hell? The answer is no. Now, I know you've heard that there is, but the poor people or the good people who told you that were unfortunately wrong. Were they sincere? I'm certain they were as sincere as the day is long. Where does this come from? It came from hell. And what I mean by that is this. Who wants you to think that God will burn people forever and ever and ever and ever? A lot of preachers and the devil. It's interesting that we lump them in together here. It's a very handy tool to get people to come down front to get people saved. If you don't get saved today, my brother, my sister, you will burn in the fires of hell forever. And while I'm being ever so slightly cartoonish, it's about the truth, yeah, man. It truly is. It just is. Who wants you to think that God is a tyrant? Satan does. Can you imagine a God? What does the Bible say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him doesn't burn forever like the rest of the sorry saps who will be in anguish and agony throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. This is a monstrosity. It simply is. Now, when I put it in terms like that, you may think I'm being a little harsh on folks who've believed that, and I don't mean to be. I don't mind being harsh on the subject matter itself, but not on people who are sincere. So, Eric, where would you recommend... Another couple of places in the Bible people could go to find out, aha, this is clearly so. It does not burn forever. You know, one of the clearest places, at least to me, is in the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, it says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. Now, we'll pause right there for just a second. If you've ever done any gardening or any farming, you may know that after the harvest is done, there's some stuff left in the field, a little bit of the leftover grain, some of the little stalks that still stick up. And if you don't get that field cleansed from it, it's going to uh, affect the crops for next season. Sure. And so what a lot of farmers will do is they will light what's called a stubble fire. It's a very hot, very fast fire. It cleanses the earth. So here, Malachi says that the wicked are going to be like stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Then in verse 3, just to emphasize it, it says, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's not enough. I'll take you to Ezekiel chapter 28. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, we're speaking about the destruction of Satan himself. And you read in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a whole passage you can read, but I'm going to zero in on verse 18. You have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. The Bible is really, really clear. There'll be a hell, it'll be hot all right, so hot it'll burn people up. Not one of these namby-pamby hells that only keeps on torturing people forever. How hot, how hot would that be? This is a hotter hell. It burns things completely. Nothing left of sinners except for ashes. No, it's not a light subject. It's not a frivolous or a trivial subject. It's very serious. Is God just? Yes, He's just. Those who have chosen sin, 
do not have Jesus. Remember 1 John 5, 12? He that hath the Son hath life. He or she who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Those who don't have Christ don't have life. They don't live forever in hell. That would be eternal life. Awful, but it would be eternal life. This paints a better picture of God. It does. It may cause you to question what you were raised to believe. That's not always a bad thing because if you come to the Bible, it will give you solid answers, God's answers. Rocky, we appreciate that question greatly. I have a question for you from Marilyn, Eric. All right. Where in the Bible does it state the acceptable meat we should eat? There's a couple of different places in the Bible that we can go to find some lists of the meat that we should eat. Now, there's a question as to whether these things even apply to us today, Mm -hmm. but I think she's on the right track. They most certainly do. God cared about uh, our health back in Old Testament times, and He cares about it no less in our time. Uh, The first place that you can go to is the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse number 3, it says, Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which you shall eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart, and the roebuck, and the fallow deer, and the wild goat, and the pygarg, and the wild ox, and the chamois. And then verse number six is kind of the, uh, the litmus test to find out what is okay to eat, permissible to eat, and what is not permissible to eat. Right. In verse number six, it says, And every beast that parts the hoof and cleaves the cleft into two claws and chews the cud among the beasts, that you shall eat. So if it's a land animal, it has to have two qualifications, split the hoof and chew the cud. Now, some animals that come to mind would be the cow, sheep, deer, mm-hmm. goat, um, bison. You know, I never did figure out why anybody would want to eat a goat. <laughs> Me either. I mean, to each her own, I suppose, but goat. But that would be some. Can you think of any others? I'm a vegetarian, so I, I, I mean, they don't just spring to uh, mind. Elk for me. probably elk. would fall in there. All right. Yeah. What about a rabbit? A rabbit would be a hare. It does not have those qualifications. Last time I checked, they didn't split the hoof. Pig? Pig. In fact, God actually explicitly talks about the pig. All right. In the next few verses, in verses 7 through 9, he says, Nevertheless, these ye shall not eat of those that chew the cud or of those that divide the cloven hoof, as the camel... That's, that's going to affect somebody. I'm not sure who, but, but somebody's going to be affected Go by that. empty my freezer of that's all that right. camel now. No, no more camel nuggets or camel cordon bleu. Sure, McCamel. No more McCamel. As the camel and the hare, there's our rabbit we were just talking about. Right. And the coney, that's a rock rabbit or a hyrax. Again, that may impact some folks' uh, diets, but not that many that I know. For they chew the cud, but they divide not the hoof. Therefore, he says, they are unclean to you. And then we get to verse number eight. And verse number eight has condemned many a refrigerator. It says in verse eight, and the swine, that is the pig. Why? Because it divides the hoof, yet chews not the cud. It is unclean unto you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. I find it interesting that the one animal that God specifically says, don't eat it. And we as human beings eat practically the whole thing. I mean, what, what do we turn a pig into today, a swine into today? Pork chops, ham, bacon, pepperoni. Uh, we got chitlins. We got pickled pig's feet. I've, I've seen about every part of the pig served to eat. Somebody Everything. once said the only thing yep. we don't eat is the oink. That's it. That's about it. Everything else we turn into something to eat. But God says, don't eat that. You know, this may upset someone. Um, but you're not upset because you just want to know what God wants. And that's what God wants. Is it for today? Yes, it's for today. 
Uh, does it mean we're legalistic because we care about this? No, it means we're Christians because we want to do what God wants us to do. And from a practical point of view, the things that God has said don't eat, they're not good for you anyway. They're just not. So God says, no, He has a better plan for you. That plan doesn't include this. Just quickly, we'll take a break, but before we do, when it comes to things out of the sea or the the, the river or whatnot, the sea creatures, the things that swim, the Bible tells us really clearly they got to have fins and scales. Same chapter, you can read it right there, or in Leviticus chapter 11. Fins and scales. So that would be trout, Yep, bass, and bass. Most of the fish. So the only one that really springs to mind a fish that would be, well, shark would not fall in there. It would not. And uh, catfish. That's right. Yeah. And shellfish. Yeah. And octopus and, and squid. There's plenty that don't. There's fins and scales. The Bible says it's okay. Now, your doctor might tell you he or she does not think it's okay. But the Bible says uh, at least it's permissible. And when it comes to birds, it can get a little complicated, but when you, when you narrow it down, God essentially says what? Well, for most people, what they want to know is, can I still eat chicken? And can I still eat turkey? From a biblical standpoint, the answer is yes. Turkey and chicken are permissible. There's a list in uh, Leviticus 11 that kind of goes through some of the others. But stay away from the, from the vulture. Uh, stay away from the buzzard, the eagle, uh, things along those lines. Carrion eating birds, uh, those you want to steer clear from. And if you, if you really want to continue to eat chicken and turkey, you might want to stay away from the doctors that we have on our It Is Written TV programs because they will tell you that those meats, though they are acceptable from a biblical point of view, aren't really smart eating. They're not particularly good for you. So you might want to know about that. Peter had a dream. He did. He had a, we'll talk about that in a moment. We're gonna, we'll, we'll take a break. And when we're back, we'll answer the question on somebody's mind. What about that dream when God told Peter he could eat whatever he wanted? We'll have a look at that in a moment. Before we go, temporarily, get your questions to us. Line upon line at IIW.org. We'll be right back. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written is a faith-based ministry. And it's your support that makes it possible for us to share God's good news with the entire world. Your tax-deductible gift can be sent to the address on your screen or through our website, itiswritten.com. Thank you for your continued prayerful support. Our toll-free number is 800-253-3000, 800-253-3000. Our web address is itiswritten.com. Join me in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Together we'll go to the very spot where the event took place that started World War I. We'll visit the crumbling Sarajevo Winter Olympic facilities, see Sarajevo roses, go to one of the most picturesque bridges in all of Europe, and visit the site of the longest siege in modern history. All of it stained by tragedy. Don't miss The Greatest War as we investigate the greatest war of all, one that affects us both, the greatest war. Watch now on It Is Written TV.
Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Welcome back to Line Up Online with Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw. Eric, a moment ago, we had a good question from, I think it was Marilyn, wanting to know about what meat is okay to eat from a biblical perspective. Excellent question. So we went to Deuteronomy, we referenced Leviticus, but we've got to talk about Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. This is a question that comes up very, very regularly. And for some people, this is it. This means, well, based on what Peter experienced None of that even matters anymore, but let's find out. I'll start reading in Acts 10, verse 9. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth wherein was all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice spoke to him again the second time and said, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. It happened three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. All right, Eric, what do we make of that so far? Well, first of all, you've got this voice telling Peter to rise, kill, and eat everything that he sees in this sheet. And how does Peter respond to this? He says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So if Jesus or anybody else had cleansed the food by this time, Peter knew nothing of it. That's a really significant point. If it was clean, why didn't Peter know? So what happened next? Verse 17, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, the men which were sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, called and asked whether Simon Peter was lodged there. The spirit said to Peter, behold, three men seek you. Arise, go down, doubting nothing. I have sent them. So what's the background to this story? So Cornelius was a Gentile. And he knew that he was supposed to get some information from Peter to, to learn something significant. And so these, uh, these three servants went to go call on Peter's house. Now, they were Gentiles. Did Jews have anything to do with Gentiles? They were not to have anything to do with Gentiles. If they did have any interaction with Gentiles, they had to go through a sort of a purification process, if you will, to to wash the dirt or the filth of the Gentiles off of them. Except God wanted the Gentiles to hear the gospel. That's right. Peter had the gospel. Peter had a problem, though. Peter was racist. He didn't want to go and mix up with these people that were not his kind. It was bigotry. I think in 2000 and whatever it is these days, we are familiar with bigotry. We've seen it enough. God was saying, brother, you need to go. But this would have been a shock to Peter. And so he he primed Peter by giving him this vision. And in the vision, God is saying the things you thought were unclean, ah, they're not unclean anymore. Certainly God isn't saying thousands of years of history. I'm just tossing away in a vision. No, no. Remember, as Eric said, 
Peter was appalled. I can't eat this stuff, but God wasn't wanting him to eat pigs. He was wanting him to take the gospel to Gentiles. In verse 28, Peter even explains this. He says, you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any pig common or unclean. It's a funny way to spell pig. Yeah, okay. M-A-N, last time I checked. Doesn't spell pig. So he wasn't talking about pigs or rock hyraxes or catfish or mussels or oysters. God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So what happened in Acts chapter 10 was not God undoing thousands of years of religious teaching, Christian, to, or, or I guess religious Old Testament, you wouldn't say Christian exactly. He wasn't undoing all of that teaching. He was trying to get through to a bigoted heart. that This man ought not be a racist and ought to be okay with accompanying with someone who was not exactly like him. And by the way, if you would have that problem in your heart, racism, a lack of tolerance, or a lack of love, or a dislike of another person simply because of the color of their skin, or the sound of their accent, or the shape of their eyes, or some such thing, God is trying to get through to you too and ask that you would leave that bigotry behind. There will not be racism in heaven, and therefore there won't be racists in heaven. Thank God there'll be some former racists, some people who repented of their racism. I know it's a challenge for some people, but that's part of being a believer in God, that God changes your heart. Okay, Eric, question from Guillermo. Please explain Leviticus 19.27. You shall not shave around the sides of your head or disfigure the edges of your beard. What was God getting at then? In Leviticus 19.27, when God's talking about uh, shaving the edges of the beard, trimming them and so forth, he's basically encouraging his followers not to try to look like the world. There were certain ways that the beards were done by the heathen back in those days, and evidently it was appealing to some of God's people. I think there are probably some similar trends today that we might be cautioned not to follow after, perhaps body piercings that's become more and more popular, not just with women, but with men as well. Tattoos. Again, now, now the reason we're mentioning this, I think. So God is saying, don't be like them. It's not necessarily that to trim your beard is, is wrong in and of itself, but God had called Israel out and placed them essentially surrounded by heathen people. God did not want them to imbibe their customs and follow their practices because one step leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. And so there are things today, I think, for, for you and me. Don't, don't do this and, and don't do that because it minimizes that separation between believers and unbelievers. Now, you can take that too far. Sure. You can be so unlike the world that you're unlike Christians and unlike Christ. There are some people who use their Christianity as a way to get away from real life rather than using it to allow them to live life to the full for God and in service to others. But it's a good principle, I think. It is a good principle. Somebody once put the idea to me this way. In order for a ship to be useful, it has to be in the water. You have a ship out of the water, it doesn't do much good. But if the water gets into the ship, then the ship goes down. And by the same token, a Christian needs to be in the world 
in order to be effective, in order to reach people. But if the world gets into the Christian, then the Christian's going to go down. And so we need to be very careful about the things that we adopt from the world, uh, that they, it blurs the distinction between what a Christian is and what the world has to offer. Amen to that. Solomon has a question for us. The question is, was Jesus a human sacrifice? Interesting question. It is an interesting question. Jesus was sacrificed for our sins, was he not? He was. All right. But did he give himself as a sacrifice? Good question. God detests human sacrifice. You know that as well as I do. In the Old Testament times, there were scoundrel kings who sacrificed even their children to essentially the devil. I mean, this is just appalling. So, if you weren't raised with the idea that Jesus died as a sacrifice for sins, you might think, mm, does this make Jesus a human sacrifice? So why do we know that it doesn't? There were certain ways that, that human sacrifices were done, certain conditions and ways that they were sacrificed. Jesus doesn't fall into those. And you've got himself also willingly giving himself. Uh, that was a choice that he made. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It wasn't that Jesus didn't agree with that. Jesus was very much in agreement with that. Jesus laid down his life for us. Let's find a parallel. You, you can never find an exact parallel sure. because we're talking about divinity on the one hand. But might it be there's soldiers in a foxhole, a grenade comes in and lands in the middle of a, of a huddle of men, and what does that heroic man do? Dives on top of it, gives his life, saves the lives of his buddies. He gave his life for others. He sacrificed his life. Was he a human sacrifice? I don't think we'd ca categorize it as such. No, he wasn't a human sacrifice, but he gave he gave his life. Jesus said, I'll read Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You can think about other ways of describing what Jesus did, but it wasn't a human sacrifice. It wasn't ritualistic. Um, it wasn't heathen. This was love. How do you understand that kind of love? I don't know that you do. I don't you can accept it. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. If you want to see what love looks like, look at Calvary. Look at Jesus dying for a sinful world. If you have resisted Jesus in your experience, I want you to think about Calvary. People who argue about Christianity, argue about the Bible. Think about Calvary. Think of the cross. That reveals to our dull senses the love that inhabits the heart of God, the love God has for us and has always had for us. Jesus did was something far more profound than a human sacrifice. He laid down his life. He laid himself down on the cross. He stretched out his arms so that those nails could be driven uh, into his body. Jesus gave his life. Amazing, but true. Not a human sacrifice, but still the mechanism by which we are separated from our sins. He took our sins upon him so that we might have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, thanks very much for your questions. We'll do this again. We would encourage you to get your questions to us line upon line at IIW.org. 
line up online at iiw.org. Be sure to join us next time. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. God bless you. Thank you. We're looking forward to seeing you again.